Revelation chapter 2 is where we're picking up today with our second church. That These are seven letters that were sent to seven churches on kind of a mail route by the Apostle John while he is on the island of Patmos in a prison state where he has been pushed there because of the fact that he was professing Christ. I want us to remember where this sits in the entire book of Revelation. We are obviously not doing an entire series on Revelation this summer, but just these letters. But it's important to understand where it sits in the midst of all of that. And so, for instance, the book of Revelation starts with the declaration that Jesus is glorious. And then these letters fall in a section that remind us that because Jesus is glorious, that we should be faithful to what he's called us to do. Follows this, starting in chapter 4 and following with the idea in 4 and 5 that God and Jesus are worthy of whatever comes our way. Chapter 6 through 16 remind us that judgment is coming. And chapter 17 and 18, that God wins the battle. And then the final thing is that we get to go home. And so in the midst of all of that, he's reminding them, Jesus is glorious and God is worth it. And judgment is coming on those that are our enemies. God will win. Jesus will be victorious. And we will spend eternity with him. This particular letter of Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 through 11 tell us about a church that was standing firm in the midst of persecution. Verse 8 says this, Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, Thus says the first and the last, The one who was dead and came to life, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful. To the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. This is one of our shorter letters. It's interesting because it's one of only two letters that has no negative thoughts or ideas or correction from Jesus. Normally the way these letters flow is a depiction of Jesus, a description of him. And then, uh, I know your deeds, these are the good things you're doing, and I have this against you. These are the things that you're not doing well. And then listen to what I say, and here's your reward. Well, there are two letters, and it's usually because it's the second letter and the next to last letter that have no condemnation, or no, I have this against you, and this is one of them. It's a letter to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was... One of the major cities of this area, it was one of the first cities to be designated at a place where emperor worship could happen. It is the only city that are described in these seven that has survived until today. Now, it's not called Smyrna today. It's called Izmir, but it is still there today. They had this civic pride about themselves. They called themselves the first in Asia. They claimed the birth of one of the greatest writers of ancient times, Homer. And they were a city that had been rebuilt. It was a city that was destroyed in 600 B.C. And when Alexander the Great was touring through in the 300s, he commissioned it to be rebuilt again. And as it was 
They literally talked about being a city that came from the ashes that rose from death. It was the center of a place where the emperor of Rome, the Caesar of Rome, was worshipped. And because of that, anyone that went against the ruler of Rome, that had not already been given special status to do so, was greatly persecuted. Including, and we'll get how in a moment how they got there, the church of Smyrna. There are four lessons that I think we need to understand and that we learn in the midst of this particular letter to this church in Smyrna. And the first is this, that Jesus is bigger than death. Each letter starts with a description of Jesus from chapter 1 that is specific for that church. And the specific declaration of who Jesus is to this church reminds them that no matter if death comes, no matter what death may bring, that Jesus is bigger than death. The description used from chapter 1 for this church is that Jesus says he is the first and the last who died and came to life. Write to the angel, the pastor, as we've talked about, of the church in Smyrna, that I am, that these are the words that thus saith the Lord, the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. Now there's a couple of reasons that those phrases are used. First of all, is the historical significance of what I just mentioned about this place was a city that had been dead and had come back to life, been destroyed, been ruined, and was now back. But there's also theological significance. Just that first phrase, first and last, seems pretty simple, but the depths of it are unbelievable. Jesus says he is the first. Think back as far as you can possibly think, and Jesus is there. Before all else, in the beginning, Jesus was there. He cannot be preempted. He once said himself, before Abraham was, I am. Think to the latest thing you could possibly think of, the last thing you could imagine, and Jesus is there. Nothing will endure past Jesus. One of the interesting things about the concept of eternity for the human mind is that, at least in my experience, it is something that we cannot fully comprehend, even though we know that we have been built for it. We all know, we have this feeling, there is this inner desire within us that there is something beyond what is happening here. There is a calling in our life, a God-shaped vacuum, an, an eternity understanding within us that we are created for more than just the years we have on this earth. And yet, when we truly begin to think about eternity and that there is no beginning and no end, that there will be nothing that will stop the unlimited passage of time, our brains cannot fully comprehend it. Amen? We just can't. We, everything we experience in life has a beginning and an end. And we judge so much of our life by the time that we spend, by the years that we live. I'm at that point again in my life when 
Olympians being my age is an amazing thing. There's a point in your life when you're really young, right? And people are like, wow. Like we were watching a diver the other day trying to make the Olympic. Anybody watching the Olympic trials a little bit? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm an Olympic. I love it. All right. So the Olympic trials, we we're watching a diver, 14 years old. And I was like, that's Luke's age. Right? Just amazing watching these gymnasts and others. And you think about their Eli's age. There comes a point in your life when everybody's your, all the football players are your age, like all that happens. And then there comes a point in your life when, like they're talking about, can you believe they're still doing this? Watching uh, last night and they were talking about somebody that was almost 40 trying to make the Olympic team. And Maddie just went, man, that's old. I said, Maddie, I don't need to hear that. All right. All right. Because now if they're my age, it's an amazing thing. Because we judge everything by the passage of time. And yet Jesus says he is before and after. The explicit claim here is divinity. Equality with God. In chapter 1 of Revelation, God is described as the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus declaring that he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and omega, you will, in a different way, is claiming equality and identifying himself with the Father. I was reading someone this week that said this is the pinnacle of high Christology or the pinnacle of an understanding of who Jesus is. And he said when you get to the peaks of understanding that, the air gets thin and our lungs cannot catch up to the ideas that are coming. That was easy for me to imagine this week. Friday afternoon we stood not even on a major mountain in Colorado, but we were well over a mile high. Standing over the edge of what looked out over the mountain range at a place called the YMCA of the Rockies and seeing the majestic reality of who God is. I thought back to a couple of years ago when we went to Denver and we did go to Mount Evans that is over 14,000 feet in the air. We got up there. I didn't feel as good. I couldn't breathe as well. Everything seemed harder. When we begin to get our minds into the place of trying to understand who God is and specifically the Christ aspect of what's happening in this passage, it's hard to comprehend because we have ascended to the loftiest descriptions of the divinity of Christ. He says he is the first and the last. But he's also the one that was dead and has come to life. How does the first and the last who is before and after have a moment when he is dead? How can God die? How has the before and after entered into the timeline of history? That which he was outside of and other than he has stepped into and lived a life and subjected himself to be killed and to rise again. The one who is eternal died. 
And the point that he is making for this particular group of people who are experiencing unbelievable persecution that we'll talk about in just a moment is that if you stand firm even unto death, you need to understand that Jesus is before and after he has experienced death and he has conquered it. Death has no power over him. Jesus is bigger than death itself. And for the people in Smyrna that were literally facing death, he is telling them death is not the worst thing that you can experience. And sometimes I think we fail to recognize that. Because if we truly believe that, it would change how we approach life. If we truly believe that death was not the ultimate end. It would change how we lived, how passionate we were, how boldly we proclaimed the gospel, how we lived our lives. Now I'm not talking about a reckless life, but I'm talking a life that is unafraid of the consequences that would come in spending our lives for the glory of God and for sharing the gospel with others. I think about How people in general and how Christians in particular have reacted to the reality of COVID over the last year. For some of us, it became pretty obvious that death was seen as the enemy that cannot be confronted. And we sacrificed everything else in our lives to protect ourselves. Scripture makes it clear that death is no longer our enemy. We should live in a way that shows our confidence in Jesus. This week I was reading an article comparing how Christians reacted to the COVID pandemic to how Christians reacted to the plagues of 1,500 years ago. I don't know whether you know how severe the plagues were, but in the initial wave of the plague, that the plague would eventually last about two to 300 years, maybe even more. In the initial wave, a third of the population of Europe died. Today, the COVID pandemic that we had was a tragedy and had tragic loss of life. But 0.2% of Americans died from COVID. To give you an idea, for us to have the same impact that the plagues had on our country, it would mean 110 million deaths. What's interesting is that what they discovered during those times of the plague is that any time anyone had any symptom that began, people would leave them to die, except for the believers who rushed into those places to nurse and to help and to be a part of a solution for those people that were in need, risking their own safety and their own security, and their own lives for the sake of others. Jesus is writing to a group of people that are having to make decisions in Smyrna on a daily basis about whether they are going to retreat and be reserved or whether they're going to go forward and proclaim. And the question is, what are we willing to risk To honor and live for the first and the last. And the one who died and came to life. He has conquered even death. 
Second thing we see in this passage of Scripture is this. Not only has Jesus conquered death, not only is he bigger than death itself. The second thing we see in this passage is that Jesus knows his people in their suffering. Jesus knows his people in their suffering. Verse 9 says this, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I know. The word there, know, is oida in the original Greek. And what that means is not I have knowledge of or have awareness of. It means that I have an experiential knowledge that I experience with you. I know with you. I am with you in the midst of this. I understand your tribulation. This past week in Denver, we read as a team Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And we read a portion of those each day, but we read all four books during the week. And we were talking at night about those what we had read. And one night we got on a discussion about the fact where Paul says, I want you to know the unknowable. And we were talking about, or that which we can't comprehend, that in Christian experience... That it's one thing to know about Jesus, it's another thing to know Jesus. I remember a few years ago when I went to, um, I've used this illustration before, but it's just so poignant about this point here. That um, a few years ago, went to Passion Conference, first one that ever, 1997. I've mentioned this to you all. One of the most powerful sermons that I ever heard in my life was presented by a guy named Dave Busby, who grew up in and around this church. Dave Busby that night was talking about the difference between knowing about and knowing through experience. And it resonated with me because he talked about a meal that he did not like as a child growing up. And I completely agreed. When I was growing up, every once in a while, mom would announce that it was time for salmon croquettes. Anybody here ever had salmon croquettes? Right? I was not, anybody here not had salmon croquettes? Praise God from whom all blessings flow there. <laughs> right. If you were lucky in the salmon croquettes, every once in a while you get that little hard piece in the middle of that. Mm. Eight-year-olds love that. All right. And the thing that made salmon croquettes even better is that when we had salmon croquettes, we knew what was going to be. Um, sorry, Mom, she's watching now. I'm sorry. When we knew what was going to be, right, it was... Green peas were with the salmon croquettes. It was like a bad combination. Dave Busby tells a story, and I remember hearing this from my mom, from my grandmother, that when they would look at our plates and see that we had been less than satisfied and that our plates were not completely empty, and we would complain about that said meal, they would say, you know that there are Starving kids, and our particular continent of choice was Africa at that moment. There are others. Starving kids in Africa that would love to have what's on your plate. I knew that, right? I knew that was a reality. When I was 22 years old, I made my first trip to Brazil. And I walked into homes with kids. That were severely hungry. And for the first time in my life, I didn't just know about, I experienced. And there's a difference between knowing about and experiencing. And Jesus tells the people in Smyrna 
I know your persecution. I am with you and know your experience. He says the word tribulation, which is difficulty, hardship, oppression, thing that pecks away at you a little bit, a little bit. He doesn't trivialize it. He doesn't one-up it with his own problems. He allows them to know that he is with them in it. And he says, I know it, and here's the way you see it. One is through poverty. It's probably from the fact that their jobs were withheld from them when people wouldn't allow them to do what they did. They couldn't make money because they were Christians. They were a poor church. I could try to give you some word study in the original language on that, but poverty here means poverty. They didn't have much. They had lost their money. They had lost their influence. They were hungry. They didn't have what other people had. And Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. But I also know that you are rich. He redirects them away from a worldly standard. We are rich not because our treasure is is here. We are rich because our treasure is eternal. He's making the point to them. It doesn't matter what everyone else has. It doesn't matter that you don't have what they have in this moment. When I come back, this book is about the return of Christ, the battle that is coming, what Jesus is doing. He says, when I return, it will not matter whether you have an open floor plan with updated appliances. It will not matter whether your car is the newest or the sleekest or the best. It will not matter if you have a vacation home on 30A. It will not matter. What we have. The only thing that will matter in that moment is do you know through experience, not head knowledge, do you know Jesus? And he says, you do. So it doesn't matter what everybody else has. Paul said to live as Christ and to die is gain. Why is it gain? Because all the earthly stuff doesn't matter anymore and I have Jesus. It leads to ask the question, how do we measure success? Do we think about the material things we have or are we focused on what God has given us in Jesus that we need to learn to hold loosely to the possessions we have on this earth? And then he says, and the slander that you have heard. You see, the Jews had an exception with the Roman government that they could worship their God without bowing down to the emperor. It was built into the original. As long as they were following Judaism, as Jews were following Judaism, they did not have to worship the emperor. And for many years at the beginning of Christianity, Christianity fell under that as a sect or a part or a subset of Judaism because they followed a Jewish carpenter, a Jewish savior, and a Jewish lord. But at some point in this particular town of Smyrna, there were people who were saying they're not like us. They shouldn't be a part of that and begin to sell them out to the Roman government. And so the persecution that the Jewish people were not facing, Christians began to face. Jesus says, I know what's happening here. So Jesus is with his people in their suffering. The third thing that we see, we got two more and they'll go quickly. The third thing we see is that in the midst of that, he calls his people to be faithful even unto death. Verse 10 
Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. He says, first of all, don't fear. One of the most used commands in all of scripture. He says, based on who I am, based on the fact that I am the first and the last, based on the fact that I am the one who has died and risen again, do not fear. Remember who is at work and who is behind this. Remember the one that is working behind the scenes. The devil is going to throw some of you into prison. The enemy of our souls, the one that is fighting against God's people and the spiritual warfare that is happening as described in Ephesians chapter 6. Know that's going to happen. And the point that you'll be there 10 days, I don't know if that is symbolic or real. I don't have the records to know, but what I know it is, is he's saying it will be a limited time. Limited will be the persecution that comes. Limited will be the punishment that will come. That I am still in control of all that is happening. And this will be a serve as a test that God is going to allow this to happen to test those people. And he says, and if it comes to it, Remain faithful unto death. Now here's the truth. Only Jesus has the authority to ask us to be faithful to something unto death because he has been. In Denver this week, one of the things that uh, we did on Wednesday, um, each day we talked about God always keeps his promises. On a Wednesday, we talked about the fact that Jesus, we used the same curriculum modified that we use, same stories that we use modified from BBS. On Wednesday, I talked about the fact that Jesus made the very difficult decision to follow God's plan, even when it was hard. We talked about the Garden of Gethsemane and all that was ahead of him. And I remember at the end of that, one of the kids who by the next day would mark that he was ready to accept Christ walked up to me while the other kids walked out and just said to me, that is really sad. But I am so thankful that Jesus did it. Sad to think about the sacrifice that Christ made, but it's only because of the sacrifice that he has made that he is able to come to us and ask us to be faithful. Philippians 2, we all know that Jesus was obedient even unto death. One author says that in the scope of Christianity, the only way to have true life is through death. Death to self and death to our sins through Christ. And here's the last thing we see in this, this letter. Jesus promises life to his people. Look what it says there at the end. Let anyone who hears listen. First of all, it says right at the beginning of that, that if you're faithful to the point of death, I'll give you the crown of life. The city of Smyrna was famous for the crowns that it would do, and there were victory crowns. And so he's saying you will be rewarded, they will be victorious. Verse 11 says, let anyone who has here listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Chapter, uh, a few chapters later, we find out what the second death is. is the lake of fire is the eternal punishment from God. And he says, to those who are my people, that stand for my people, the people that have been saved by me, you will not have to worry about a second death, but will live 
and eternal life. He says to all those that are willing to follow regardless of the circumstances, know that the first and the last, the one who died and rose again, will give you the victory of life. One of my favorite stories from Christian history is about a guy named Polycarp. And here's what's interesting about Polycarp. I've told this story before. What's interesting about Polycarp for this particular passage is this. Polycarp, most people think, before he became a martyr, was the bishop or the pastor or the angel of the church of Smyrna. More than likely, he was the pastor of Smyrna that received this letter. He was trained by John. He was commissioned by John to be the leader of Smyrna. And he lived a long life after John. But one time, as he was near the end of his life, he went to Rome to advocate for something. And while he was there, he was arrested. He predicted to some of his friends that he would be burned at the stake. And the time came for that to happen. And he was being carted into the stadium. This former pastor of Smyrna that would have read, be faithful unto death. And he heard a voice that just simply said, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw who had spoken, but other people heard the voice in the stadium. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him where, whether he was. On hearing this, he tried to persuade him to, to move away. So the proconsul, the leader, the governor says, can you just deny Christ? He said to him, have respect for your old age, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say down with the atheists. Polycarp looked grimly. They called Christians atheists, by the way, because they believe not in the many gods, but just one God. Polycarp looked grimly and wicked heathen multitude. And he said, so get this, the guy says, just say down with the atheists and repent and swear by Caesar and you'll be okay. Polycarp looks at the crowd and gestures towards them and says, down with the atheists. The proconsul said, swear, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. And Polycarp said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The governor said, I've got wild animals here. I'll throw them on you if you don't repent. And Polycarp said, send them. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good, to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. He says, if you despise the animals, then I'll burn you. And he says, you threaten me with a fire which burns for an hour as then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Bring whatever you want. They collected the wood, the bundles of sticks. When the pile was ready, Polycarp took off his outer clothes, sat ready to be burned. They were going to put nails into his hands to fix him on the stake where he would be burned. And he says, leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle. I don't need your nails. So they bound his hands behind him. 
He looked up to heaven and he said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs. I give you thanks that I share the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to be, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. To you, with him, through the Holy Ghost, be both glory now and forevermore. Amen. They lit the fire and it did not burn him. It created, as was described, a bubble around him. And he stood firmly in the midst of it, praising God. Eventually on that day, some men took their daggers and killed him. But he was faithful Unto death, as the Lord Jesus, through the Apostle John, had sent a letter to the church where he pastored. And in the midst of it, he glorified his God. There's only one way that you can stand firm in the midst of that, and that is you absolutely believe that Jesus is bigger than death. That he is with you in the midst of your persecution. And that by being faithful to him to the point of death, that you will receive Life. And sometimes when I read those stories, our lives seem so small. And the stands that we are asked to take seem so insignificant. And yet, this is what God has called us to do. And my prayer is that we will be a people who will stand firm and do what God has called us to do, regardless of what the outcome may be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray in this moment that your will would be done and that you would give us wisdom to fulfill your calling on our lives. In Jesus' name I pray.